Amen. Thank you, guys. You brought a Bible. Say yes. And I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and open it to Luke's Gospel, chapter 17 this morning. If you're visiting, we've been going verse by verse through this particular Gospel and very excited to be able to talk to you about the subject this morning, keep your eyes open. You know, that's kind of been the subject over the past several weeks as we have heard Jesus Christ encourage you and I to make sure that we keep our eyes open for stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks in our life are those things that trip us up, but also those things that trip other people up. So God wants to use us to help influence the kingdom, to make disciples. So we need to make sure we keep our eyes open for anything that would hinder us from being all that God created us to be. Now this morning, the Lord Jesus is going to basically encourage you and I to keep our eyes open for false teaching about his coming. False teaching about his coming. So I'm very excited to be able to talk to you on that this morning as we learn how to keep our eyes open for the truth. So let's stand together in honor of God's word. Luke chapter 17, you've got it there in front of you. Say yes. And the Bible says, beginning in verse 20, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, and this is a powerful statement here, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they'll say to you, look there, look here, do not go away, do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. And it was the same as it happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is in the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever keeps or rather seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. So let's bow together. Father, first we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the king. And we submit to his authority this morning. And Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would take your word now and you would train us in the way that we should live, looking forward into the future to what you have in store for your church as well as Israel. And God, I pray that Luke chapter 17 will become one of those landmark mountain peaks in the life of every single believer when it comes to understanding more about the end times. And God, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes open, not to be sidelined by false teaching, unbiblical truth, but help us to submit to what the word of the Lord says. And God, we're going to give you glory. I also pray for those who are here this morning who do not have a relationship with you. 
God, I pray that you would speak clearly to them and draw them to salvation by the power of your great grace. And we'll give you glory for how you work this morning. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. So you can be seated. So let me ask you a question. Whenever you hear the word anticipation, what comes to your mind? I mean, what really pops into your head? You know, anticipation is looking forward to something. And all of us have experienced anticipation at some level in our lives before. I remember anticipating the day that I'd have the opportunity to marry my wife, Krista, down here. God bless you for being here. Also anticipated the day that I would one day be a pastor. You know, I so dig uh, what the Lord has called me to do. I could not wait to be doing that every single weekend. And then Chris and I both anticipated the birthdays of all four of our children. So we had that longing, that expectation for those particular days to occur in life. And I know all of you have probably could raise your hand this morning and be like, there was a time when I anticipated this particular situation. But you know, I've also witnessed anticipation. This past week in our own home, uh, North Hall began school. Now, three of our four children go to Wauka Mountain uh, Multiple Intelligences Center. Would you like to be a cheerleader, by the way, for that group? Go, Wauka Mountain Multiple Intelligence Center. Anyway, it's too long. This is my point, all right? God bless you. Y'all just want to pray? Y'all look a little rough this morning, all right? But anyway, they were anticipating going to school. At least two out of three were. Garrison woke up at 3 a.m. in the morning for school. Y'all listening? That boy is ready to roll and learn. All right. Maddie, on her way to school, she looks at her mom and basically says, my stomach feels all kind of funny down here. She's anticipating, longing for, looking forward to school. Gavin, totally different story. He doesn't dig it. Y'all listening? He's the subject of another sermon. But all of us have experienced anticipation. We've all actually witnessed anticipation as well in the lives of other people. Now, if we could kind of go back to the future this morning and experience a little bit of what Michael J. Fox experienced and go back to the day when Jesus Christ was in Luke chapter 17, we would realize that the Jewish culture actually, I mean, they had the height of anticipation in their lives in this particular day of Christ. And the reason that they did is because they were anticipating God doing something great. They were anticipating and looking forward to God fulfilling his promise made to King David in the Old Testament. God made a promise to David saying this, I'm going to raise up a descendant of yours who will establish a kingdom that will reign for eternity. And so they were looking forward to this. And the reason that their anticipation level was so high in this particular day is simply because the Roman government's oppression continued to increase every single day. So they wanted a king to come who was promised by God, who would overthrow the Roman government and set them free, and then at the same time establish an eternal kingdom where they would reign with their king. They were looking forward to it. It's promised in the Old Testament. So they are right to look for that literal kingdom. Now Jesus burst on the scene. And when Jesus shows up, what is the subject of all of his teaching? The majority of his teaching. He's talking about the kingdom. And so now eyeballs and ears are following Jesus wherever he goes, like moth to a flame. They are longing to hear about the kingdom of God. But what is interesting is that the religious elite did not really like Jesus. Matter of fact, they hated him. One of the major reasons they couldn't stand Jesus because Jesus told them that they were teaching their traditions, which they created as a list of little rules and don'ts on how to live for God. They were teaching them as if they were the word of God. And so Jesus basically comes to them and points out their own hypocrisy, showing them the error of their ways. They did not like this. 
So they despised the Lord Jesus. But they not only did not like Jesus because of what he taught, they also didn't like Jesus because of who he hung out with. And we know through our study of Luke's gospel that he hung out with tax collectors. Tax collectors were vehemently hated by the religious elite and really by pretty much everybody in Jewish culture. It's because tax collectors were Jews who became traitors to their own people and began collecting funds to help finance the oppressive Roman government. So nobody liked tax collectors, except Jesus hung out with them. The Bible also tells us that Jesus hung out with sinners. Now, sinners to the Jewish mindset, not only those who had broken the moral law, but also those individuals who were uh, considered to be deformed. In fact, those who were blind, those who were lame, those who could not walk, they were classified as sinners. And those who were the religious elite were actually teaching that the reason they were experiencing this deformity was because of sin in either their life or their parents' life. So when Jesus shows up and he begins to hang out with all of those who are sinners and embrace those who have diseases and who are deformed, they totally turn from him. They could not believe his attitude. They could not believe that Jesus would claim to speak on behalf of God and act in such a manner. And so the Pharisees, on more than one occasion, are dogging at the heels of Jesus, trying to trap him with their words and with their questions. And so they're always trying to paint Jesus into a corner to get him to say something that might make him look as if he is speaking about something that is unbiblical, or make him look foolish so they can all point the finger at him and say, see, we told you this Jesus you need not listen to and you need not follow. And that's what occurs in Luke chapter 17 in our text this morning. Jesus has a conversation at the onset with some Pharisees, Pharisees, highly religious people. Most scholars believe that this conversation was massively sarcastic. And so these particular Pharisees come up to Jesus and in a sarcastic tone ask Jesus, so tell us then, you who know so much about the kingdom, when is the kingdom going to come? Now Jesus, awesome answer to this particular question. Jesus looks at them and gives them that phrase that is massively weighty to their minds and to their ears. He says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, everybody look at me eyeball to eyeball because this is important. I, nor you, can really understand the weight of that statement. I think the reason that we can't understand the weight of that statement is because we don't live in a kingdom and we don't have a king. So as a result, whenever we read about these kingdom principles and we study about kings, our minds are kind of removed from that particular setting. Therefore, whenever we see Jesus make some of these comments, they don't hit us as hard as they would have hit those who were listening to him. So those in this particular context who were listening to Jesus actually equated, listen to this, a kingdom with the king. So wherever you had the king, it was synonymous with the kingdom. Wherever you had the kingdom, it was synonymous with the king. So when the Lord Jesus Christ says, the kingdom of God is in your midst, that would have made everybody open their eyes wide and say, what are you talking about? Jesus himself, in that statement, was claiming to be the king of the kingdom. It is right in your midst. Now, what's unique about that statement, too, is it's not like straight in your face, right? So if I were Jesus, and I'm not, but if I were Jesus, I think I'd have been a little more straight about it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? 
So instead of just saying the kingdom of God is in your midst, I'd be like, and I am the king, ching, and then I would have thrown some thunderbolts and lightning. Y'all know what I'm saying? It's like, here I am, back up, shawty, right? That's what I would have been like. But that's not how Jesus responds. Aren't y'all grateful he doesn't respond like that, using the word shawty? But it's interesting what Jesus does. Instead of carrying on this conversation with the Pharisees, he turns his attention to the disciples. And what he does is he wants them to make sure they keep their eyes open because there are always going to be people talking about the kingdom. And there are always people who are going to be claiming to be the king of the promised kingdom of God. So he wants them to keep their eyes wide open so that they are not steered off the right path. So in this text this morning, you and I are going to learn some things about the kingdom as well. Talk a little bit also about the end times. So you need to pay very, very close attention. So here's the very first principle that Jesus is teaching from the text. He teaches that the fulfillment of the kingdom is in the future. The fulfillment of the kingdom is in the future. So look at your Bible, verse 22. He said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. So by the way, the term son of man is a reference to the Messiah King. So he's saying you're going to long to see the Messiah King and you will not see it. You see that phrase there. And since we've already noted that a kingdom is its king, Jesus is teaching the disciples in Luke chapter 17 that they would not see the day when the fulfillment of the kingdom would actually occur on the earth. In short, he was letting them know that they would be dead before the fulfillment of the kingdom. Therefore, they shouldn't be deceived. They should not be steered off course by those who claim to have in their sights uh, the kingdom during their lifetime. Now, this is huge. Verse 23, they will say, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. And by the way, if you want to study end times, these are some paramount passages of Scripture. Luke chapter 17 is one, but read that alongside Matthew chapter 24. It is another mountain peak about the end times where Jesus describes his second coming. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 24, which would lay aside Luke chapter 17 and verse 23, this statement is awesome. Jesus says, see to it that nobody misleads you. So that's the deal. It's like the number one attack on what God is doing upon the earth is false teaching. So be confident that nobody misleads you. He says, many are going to come in my name. Many are going to say, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And you and I have experienced that in our lifetime. There are many people who have popped up and claimed to be Jesus. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a guy down in Florida right now who says he is Jesus Christ. And this dude is crazy. Are y'all listening? But there are thousands of people who have gathered around him. He's claiming to be Jesus. Now, if they had just read their Bible, they would have realized not to go running after him. Now, we'll come back to verse 24, but look at verse 25. The Bible says, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And herein lies the reason Jesus is saying that the kingdom will come in the future. Uh, there is something vital that's going to occur to Jesus Christ prior to the fulfillment of God's literal kingdom upon the earth. And what is that? Well, Jesus has to suffer and to die. Uh, this was not on the radar, by the way, of any person listening and anticipating the kingdom of God. Jewish culture was looking for a sovereign king to establish a kingdom upon the earth. They were not looking for a suffering servant. However, we know Jesus did go to the cross. We know because we've read the rest of the story that Jesus died upon the cross as the substitute for man's violation of God's law. 
We have all sinned and fallen short of God's holy standard. And as such, we deserve death and we deserve hell. But Jesus died to pay for our sins upon the cross. And then the Bible says that he was placed in a borrowed tomb for three days. And on the third day, he was gloriously resurrected from the dead. So we serve a risen Savior. If it were Easter Sunday morning, y'all would have been like, amen. It's exactly right, preacher, preach on. So I'm going to give you all another shot. Y'all listening? Jesus died. He was buried. Three days later, he got up from the dead, and we serve a risen king. There you go. Now, we should do that every Sunday. Y'all listening? That's how it ought to be. Y'all be fired up that we're not serving some dead Muhammad. All right? Not some made-up Confucius. All right? Allah is not God because Allah does not exist. That's the figment of an individual's imagination. Jesus claimed, spelling God out to the world, he died, he got up from the dead, and we ought to pay attention to what he says because he's God. All right? And so this is what Jesus is teaching here, that he's actually going to die. Now, this is pretty cool, right? So a little Bible history for us. Everybody track with me. All right? They were asking Jesus about the coming of the kingdom before he died. After his death and resurrection, the Bible teaches that he displayed himself to many people. In particular, he went to the disciples. And here's what the disciples said whenever they saw Jesus. They're like, Jesus, is now the time of the coming of your kingdom? Is now the time? Or is this when it's going to happen now? So they are still curious about the coming of the kingdom. Jesus says to them in Acts chapter 1, that you shouldn't be concerned about those particular times. God the Father has preordained when it will occur upon the earth. And then he goes a step further in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 and says, but you are going to become my witnesses because the Holy Spirit is going to come and indwell you and you will speak of me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So what Jesus teaches in Acts chapter 1 is that the literal kingdom, not coming yet, but there's actually going to be a spiritual kingdom upon the earth and that spiritual kingdom most scholars call the church and the church is marked by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So as soon as people begin to give their hearts to Jesus Christ in the book of Acts and all the way even to our current day, they actually receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their life where Jesus rules and reigns in their hearts. That is a spiritual kingdom. But there's still a promise of a literal kingdom coming. Now here's the deal too because it's pretty massive. Whenever we study this, in the Jewish mindset, this idea of the church age really did not compute. They were looking simply for a king to come, establish an eternal kingdom, save Israel, and be done with it. They could not understand what Paul the Apostle calls the mystery of the church. That Jews and Gentiles alike would come to faith in Jesus Christ, realizing his death paid for their sin, and he was resurrected from the dead, and they give their heart to him. They did not realize that there would be a time frame known as the church age where people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation would come and be a part of this family. Y'all with me say yes? So what is awesome here is that Jesus begins to remind us through Luke chapter 17, that although we are experiencing a spiritual kingdom now, there is a literal kingdom coming. Now, this is when we're going to go to school. Y'all with me say yes? That's all. We got a little board set up here for us. And uh, what I'd love to do with the marker that works, 
I had one in the first hour and it didn't. Y'all all right? Yeah, that blew the whole sermon. We just prayed and left. Y'all with me? We put this also in your listening guide, but I just want to draw you a quick timeline so that you and I can really grab hold of Luke chapter 17 and the context in which Jesus is talking. So first of all, we'll just draw a long line which will represent basically what is happening here on the earth. All right, so if you were to draw an OT over here, that basically would stand for, anybody know? Old Testament, all right? And then as you continue to find uh, through Scripture, you come to uh, Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross and his resurrection. And then all of a sudden you've got in this particular time frame what is known as the church age. And remember, the church is marked by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's birthed in Acts chapter 2 and continues to grow. Jesus promised in Matthew's gospel to Peter that the gates of Hades would not prevail against the church. So the church in our current day is actually on offense going forward with the gospel so that others might come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible also describes a time in which the days of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. Now, Gentiles, y'all with me, class? Gentiles are not Jews. So if you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile, all right? So there's going to be a time frame in which the catching up of the Gentiles is going to come to a completion. And in that particular time frame, what occurs is what the Bible clearly teaches is the rapture of the church. And I love this, all right? The rapture of the church. The rapture is taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That we will hear a trumpet sound, Jesus will come in the clouds, and he will catch up all of those who have trusted in him and bring us to himself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's taught. We also find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the rapture is taught very clearly. How we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We also know by studying the book of Revelation, something quite unique about the church. The church is talked about in the book of Revelation chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. You have Jesus and his messages to the church. But as soon as chapter 4 is over with, you don't hear about the church anymore. The church does not show up again until Revelation chapter 19 when the church comes back with Jesus to the earth. So what is the deal after chapter 4? What happened to the church? Well, it's the rapture of the church. That's why James is messing with y'all talking about rapture practice. But there'll come a time, and listen, here's the awesome thing. Nothing has to happen. Some people are like, what has to happen before the rapture occurs? Nothing, man. Anytime Jesus can rapture the church. So as soon as that last person gives their heart to Jesus Christ, boom, rapture, we go up to be with the Lord in heaven. I'd like to be a part of that worship service. Y'all all right? Homeboy prays to receive Jesus like, boom, we're just gone. Now, if y'all here, you can finish this outline. Y'all with me? <laughs> that was pretty good, I thought. Now, what are we doing? Let me just give this to you very quickly. We actually will be raptured up, and we will go to what the Bible calls the beam of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. It's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, also 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We will be held account for how we lived our life as a follower of Jesus here upon the earth. And at the beam of seat, we will receive rewards for our service. And those rewards will actually prepare us for what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, all right? And the marriage supper of the Lamb is our supper with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's neat about this is that we will actually receive our dress for the supper based upon our service here on the earth. Erwin Lutzer says it best. 
our service today is sowing our dress for eternity. So what you do now does indeed matter. And I would love to preach on that a little more, but I need you to see something else. When the church is raptured up, the Bible teaches in the book of Daniel that there's actually going to be a seven-year uh, tribulation. Let me see if I can write that a little thicker. But a seven-year tribulation here upon the earth. Now, when the church disappears from the globe, you can only imagine the panic upon the earth. And you're like, what happened, everybody? Where is everyone? What is going on? And it'll be at this time that people will look for a grand leader who can help them. And that grand leader is the Antichrist. So he will show up with overwhelming persuasiveness. He will reveal himself, and everyone will flock to his leadership. He will seem to have phenomenal ideas. In fact, this guy is so persuasive, we don't know who he is, but he is so persuasive that he will actually encourage and lead a transition of where the Dome of the Rock currently sits in Israel, the place of the Muslim holy site. That will be removed... And Israel, the Jewish nation, will have the opportunity to rebuild the temple that is destroyed. Now, you've got to be one persuasive joker to convince the Muslim culture to get rid of their holy site and allow Jews to build theirs. But that's what occurs. First three and a half years, by the way, of the tribulation seem like awesome. All right? Great peace upon the earth. People, everybody's getting on the same pattern, on the same wavelength. Seems like it's going to be great. Last three and a half years, not so much. In fact, that's described in the Old Testament as a time of Jacob's trouble. Right? This is the time when Israel is going to face great persecution, but at the same time, this is the time when all heaven is going to break loose. Now, some people say all Hades or hell is going to break loose, but really it's all heaven because God begins to send judgments upon the earth. You read the book of Revelation, you read about the seal judgments, you read about the trumpet judgments of God. These are sent by the Lord to the earth. So all things are going to be horrible after this three-and-a-half-year mark. And by the way, the very center of that three-and-a-half-year mark is the time frame after the temple is built by the Jewish nation, and then the Antichrist sits down on the throne of the temple and claims himself to be God. And then, boy, it's not good on the earth. Matter of fact, death like the earth has never experienced before. Many people dying all over the globe at the end of the seven-year time frame, what happens is people on the earth think our problem really is Israel. Are y'all listening? Say yes. Everybody tracking, right? So here's what they got. So here's what we're going to do. Israel's the issue. So let us all get together a big old army and just totally wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Let's get rid of them, and then we'll have peace and security. And so that's what happens. They begin to join around them. This is called the Battle of Armageddon. And this is a time frame where they want to get rid of Israel, but what is awesome is that this is the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. Jesus comes back. Why? Romans chapter 9 says Jesus comes back to redeem Israel. The Old Testament promises that a king will come for Israel who will rescue them and establish an eternal kingdom. And that's what Jesus comes back to do. And the Bible teaches in Revelation chapter 19 that we, the church, will actually come back with Jesus to the earth. Israel will be saved. And then the scriptures teach in the book of Revelation that there is a millennial kingdom that will be established upon the earth. And the reason I stopped writing that is because I don't know how to spell that. Millen. Just trust me, all right? Millennial kingdom upon the earth. 
Now, this kingdom is promised in the Old Testament. This kingdom has to occur upon the earth because God made a promise. He made a promise to David that it would occur, and it hasn't yet. So it is coming. Now, whenever we come back with Jesus, the Bible teaches that you and I will actually rule and reign with Christ upon the earth. And what you do during the millennial kingdom, what I do during the millennial kingdom, will all be based upon our faithfulness to serve Jesus in this current church age. So we will be dealt out responsibilities in the kingdom of God. And what is awesome too, by the way, which I absolutely love, is Jesus is like, if you are faithful in a few things, I will give you charge over more. That is a promise about the millennial kingdom, a time frame when this will occur. At the end of the millennial kingdom, which by the way is going to last 1,000 years. Why? Because the Bible says, book of Revelation, be a thousand year reign. So at the end of a thousand year reign, then you'll have the eternal state, new heaven, and new earth. And there's a lot that goes on there, but I'm not going to teach on that this morning. Y'all still tracking, yeah? Now here's what's awesome, all right? When we get into Luke chapter 17, we've got to make sure that we keep that chapter in context with our end times understanding of what Scripture says. See, most people read Luke chapter 17 as well as Matthew chapter 24 and automatically assume Jesus is talking about the rapture. Well, that's not what he's talking about. Jesus is actually talking about his second coming. Why is he talking about that? How do we know that's the subject of his conversation? Because that's the question that was asked to him. Tell us about the coming of your kingdom. And so he begins to describe it. Now, here's what's awesome about Jesus. He says, know this, disciples, it is going to happen in the future. And then the second reality that Jesus says is this. He's like, when I come to establish my kingdom, everybody is going to know about it. It won't be a secret. Everybody will know about it. Matter of fact, look at verse 24 in your Bible. It says, just like lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Do you know that science shows that a lightning bolt has the capabilities of reaching speeds of up to 93,000 miles per second? That being the case, Jesus says, when I come back, it's going to be like lightning in the sky. If you have one lightning bolt that went the full speed all the way around the globe, guess how long it would take? A fourth of a second. So this statement heightens the reality that when Jesus Christ comes, not only will it be aware to everyone, but it will be overwhelmingly speedy. And Jesus then begins to illustrate what it's going to be like when he comes again. He talks about it in verse 26 and says it's going to be like the days of Noah. He talks about it also in verse 28 and says it's going to be like the days of Lot. Well, what are those days like? What are those days like? Let's notice what Jesus says in verse 27. The Bible says they were eat, this is the days of Noah. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Now listen, here's what I dig, right? Some people are like, uh, Levi, I don't like to listen to you preaching because you preach fire, hell, and brimstone. Jesus preached it. <laughs> so you would not have dug his preaching either. Right? But that's what Jesus is talking about. He refers them back to this time frame. And then notice verse 30. Here's the uh, uh, synonymous transaction that Jesus wants to get into our minds. He says, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. 
Now, this simply magnifies the point that people will be carrying on with their lives. They'll be focused on the here and now when all of a sudden, like the flood during the days of Noah, like the fire in the days of Lot, Jesus will come suddenly and destroy unbelievers and institute a literal kingdom upon the earth. So what is it going to look like? Verse 34 and 36 in your Bible. I tell you on that night, there'll be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There'll be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Now, this is massive here. We've got to keep this verse in its context. Everybody with me say yes. Eyeball to eyeball. I told you I was going to school this morning, so y'all look up there at me. Typically, we read this passage of Scripture, and I've heard it preached this way. I don't know how many times when I was growing up that that was a picture of the rapture. Two in the field, one gone, rapture. And what's unique, though, is that the church hasn't even been birthed yet in Luke chapter 17. Jesus is not asked about the rapture of the New Testament church. He's asked about his second coming. So that text isn't talking about the rapture. It's talking about the second coming of Jesus. So since it is talking about the second coming of Jesus, this is where you and I have to put everything into its context. He says, just like in the days of Noah, what happened? The days of Noah happened and the floods came and did what? Destroyed them all. He says, just like the days of Lot, the fire came and destroyed them all. It's just like the days of Jesus, the son of man. He will come and destroy them all. That's the synonym. So the two people who are grinding in the mill, the two people who are hanging out in the bed, two people who are at work, if we can kind of put it in our context, the two people who are riding in a vehicle down the street, one taken, one left, who is taken? Well, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, those who are taken are those who are unbelievers. And they are taken away to judgment. And those that are left are those who are saved along with the church with glorified bodies entering in to the millennial kingdom. So we are here upon the earth serving, ruling, and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are removed are those who are taken off to judgment. Jesus teaches this over and over in the New Testament. In fact, he talks about many parables in Matthew chapter 13. One of them is the parable of the dragnet. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast out into a sea. 